to today with a message titled, When God Seems Distant. And I think that some of the answers that we're going to talk about today are going to surprise you. Today I'd like us to consider a man from the Bible who struggled with a lot of questions about life, its meaning, humanity's relationship with God, and things of the like. And you've no doubt heard of him, but I would venture a guess that you probably don't know all that much about him. Of course, I'm talking about a man named Job. Job's name is synonymous with attributes such as patience, long-suffering, and a seeming imperviousness to suffering and injustice. However, what we don't often talk about, and what I think is a pretty big deal, is his deep and abiding faith in humility. So let's begin by setting the stage and uh, giving what we're going to talk about a little bit of context. Job um, was a man in the Old Testament, and dating him is interesting. There are some theologians who believe that Job actually predated Abraham. I mean, we're talking a couple thousand years before Christ. Others, they're going to say somewhere between about 1500 and maybe 1200 B.C. Job was a unique individual in that, uh, you know, if you, if you read the book of Job, you'll find that it is some of the finest literature that you will ever read. Even, even secular, uh, secular uh, teachers and, and people that study this kind of literature will tell you how well written it is and how well versed it is. It's very, very good reading. It's difficult reading because it's tough stuff, but nevertheless it is, is, is very good. The story sets off with, with uh, talking about a guy named Job. Job, according to, to the book of Job, oddly enough, is, is, is said to be a man who is totally righteous, lives a great life. I mean, is totally devoted to God, his ways, his statutes. I mean, he, he is a shining example of, of, uh, to humanity uh, of what a human being should be like. In fact, it's so much so that the Bible tells us that at, at one time God was, was I, don't, I don't want to say entertaining, but uh, I'll put it that way because it'll make a little bit more sense in our context. God was entertaining the host of heaven. And don't you know old Satan comes strolling across the scene. God asks him the straight question. It's like, yeah, what, what are you doing here? You know? And, he, and, he, and then he looked at him and he said, have you considered my servant Job? How upright and perfect and, and, and wonderful he is. Isn't he a stand-up guy? Um, he didn't say that, but I mean, I'm kind of contextualizing it here a little bit. Isn't he a stand-up guy? And Satan says, well, of course he is. He says, because you don't do nothing to him. He said, I'll tell you what. You let me take away his riches. You let me take away his family. You let me take away all his creature comforts, and he will curse you to your face. And God didn't believe it. He said, well, I'll tell you what. You go ahead, but don't you harm him. You know? So he does. And the next thing you know, all of all, this series of things happen, and Job loses all of his possessions. He loses his family. The only one he's got left is his wife. And his wife looks at him as Job is sitting in a heap of ashes and, uh, and sackcloth, and, and Job's wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And then Job looks at him and said, woman, you're a fool. You know, get out of my face. Get away from me. I don't, you know, we're not going to do that. So God's entertaining the host of heaven one more time, Satan comes up, you know, and God says, you know, once again, what are you doing here? Have you considered my servant Job? Even though I allowed you to do this to him, he's still, he's still as faithful as he ever was. And, and Satan said to him, well, of course he is. If you let me harm him, if you let me take away his health, he'll curse you to your face. He said, okay, you can do it, but don't you kill him. So all kinds of horrible things happen physically to Job, and, uh, and he's just in total, total mourning. Well, something really cool happens at this point. 
Job has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And these guys come strolling up to him, and they heard that their friend Job had come across this horrible, this horrible, you know, these maladies came about him, these horrible disasters came upon him, and they came up to him, and they, 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 they came, and they sat beside him, and for ten days, they just wept with him. They said nothing. There's a lesson here for you, just as an aside. I want you to remember this. Many of us have lost dear friends. Many of us have lost family members. And it is a pain that is absolutely unspeakable. You can't even begin to describe it. Some of us haven't suffered through that. And, and I pray you never have to. But one of the things that I can tell you is the best thing you can do for someone who is struggling and suffering through this kind of difficulty, through this kind of loss, is this. Be there for them, weep with them, but don't say a word. It's one of the hardest things you will ever do because there's stuff inside that you want to say to this person and you think it's going to be comforting and you think it's going to be wonderful, but all you're going to do is make matters worse. I say that from experience. And the thing of it is, is that understand something. If you say something that you probably shouldn't have said to someone, even with the best of intentions in mind, they're never going to forget it. And your relationship will never, ever be the same. The best thing you can do for someone who is struggling and suffering through incredible loss and difficulty is just to be there for them. Let them speak to you. Let them talk to you. And just keep your mouth shut. Anyway, back to the story. With Job, what happens is all of a sudden, then Job decides that he's going to say something. One of the first things out of his mouth is he said, you know, I, 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 wish I, was, I wish I would have never been born. And then he goes off. And then it would have been, wouldn't have been so bad, but then his three friends, who everybody thought was such stand-up guys, gets into it, and one of them says, well, Job, you know, you're going through this difficulty because there's some sin in your life that you just haven't confessed. And then the other one comes up and he starts into something. He said, you know, Job, if you just had a little more faith, you know, if you just trusted God just a little bit more, you probably wouldn't have had to go through all this stuff. And then another guy came up and he was just, he was just sour and no good. He said, Job, you're just a no good guy. That's why this is happening to you. He said, it's nothing particular that you did. It's just who you are. You can't help it. And Job just sat, Job sat there and said, man, you know, with friends like this, you know, so all of a sudden, some things started, but Job mentioned some things along, along the way, and what happens is, is that his friends keep coming back and just saying some incredibly stupid things, and it gets to the point where Job is pretty much coming to the end of his rope, and he is feeling that God has perhaps abandoned him, or worse yet, made a chump out of him. Listen to a couple of verses from the 23rd chapter. This is Job speaking. He said, Behold, I go forward, and he is not there. Backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. And he turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In other words, Job's looking all around. What he's basically seen is, I've looked everywhere. I've looked in all directions. And I can't find God anywhere in this. And you know what? Given what Job has been through, could you blame him for feeling this way? Seriously. 
He lived a life dedicated to God, and he was upright, and he was blameless. And even when everything fell apart and his life came undone, he refused, absolutely refused, as his wife had advised, to curse God and die. But he was getting to the point where he was beginning to consider the unthinkable and perhaps his greatest fear that God had abandoned him in the time of his greatest need. I think those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, if we were perfectly honest, would say that we could relate to him. One of, if not perhaps our greatest fear, is that of abandonment, that of being left high and dry in the midst of our darkest time. American writer and theologian Frederick Buechner puts it this way. He said, as the farthest reach of our love for each other is loving our enemies, as the farthest reach of God's love for us is loving us that are most unlovable and lovely, so the furthest reach of our love for God is loving him when in almost every way that matters we can neither see nor hear him when the worst of the wilderness for us is the fear that he has forsaken us, if indeed he exists at all. I know a number of people who over the years have rather sadly lost their faith over this issue. They couldn't or didn't get their heads around the statement that I'm about to make, that understanding and believing in spite of how one might feel that it is absolutely key to walking out the other side stronger and more assured than you could even begin to imagine. Here it is. Write this down. Don't confuse God's distance with the lack of his presence. Job assumed because God did not answer him immediately or meet him in a way that Job believed that he should, that he had, in fact, abandoned him. He said this a little further down in chapter 23. Take a listen. This is verse 3. He says, Oh, that I, that, oh, that I know, knew where I might find him. I might even come to his seat. What he's saying is, is Jesus, if I, if I just knew where to look, I'd go, I'd go track him down. I'd wait there for him. Job was at his wit's end, and he didn't know where to go to find him or what to do. From this time on, Job becomes or begins to become a little bit more embittered with his friends and begins to question God and his motives, and I believe largely you know, so that he can justify himself in his own eyes and, and those of his friends. You know, my Old Testament prophet seminary believed that he was attempting to put God on trial so that he could justify what was happening to him. The problem with that is that he didn't have all the information. You see, he didn't know what God knew, let alone the wisdom that he needs to make that kind of a decision. He didn't understand that outside of his finite, limited understanding, that the transcendent, limited God, or limitless God, had gone all in on him. He had gone all in on Job's trust and faithfulness. You know, it's funny. We find ourselves, at least in in my own situation, and I can say this because with the people that I've ministered to, is oftentimes, you know, when we're up against something really, really hard, you know, our peripheral vision, we kind of lose it, don't we? All we can see is what's in front of us. I kind of equate it to like standing in front of a wall with your nose against it. You can see perfectly well. 
But all you can see is that wall that's in front of you. You can't see what's going on out here on the side, what's going on on the periphery, what's going on behind you. It's kind of a similar situation with what's going on here. You see, when, in, from a spiritual perspective as well, we can't see what's, what's, what's going on beside us, especially when we're in the midst of a difficult time or trouble. They, you know what? They call it darkness because we can't see anything around us. Even spiritual darkness. We can't feel or see anything that's going on around us. All we know is what's going on right in front of our face. You see, we don't see what God is up to on the side. We don't know what he's doing behind us. We don't know the things that he's working and going on and what he's doing over here because we simply can't see him. What, he's, what, what, what has to happen at that point What has to happen in order for us to, not just to maintain our faith, but to grow in it, is we need to learn to trust God. We need to learn to trust that God is working here in the periphery of us, that we can't see, and that he has our best intentions in mind when he does these things. Well, after all of this is going on with Job, finally God had reached a place where he absolutely had to make himself known. And so it began. Job chapter 38 and verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Okay, question for you. What's the definition of a whirlwind? You know, when I think of a whirlwind, I used to think that it was those little dust things that happened. You know, you've been there. If you've been on the beach and you've seen the sand, you know, kind of twirl around, oh, that's pretty cool. But you know what the definition of a whirlwind is? A tornado. A tornado's a whirlwind. So picture this. Picture Job having gone through everything that he had gone through. And he's sitting there thinking that God had abandoned him. And then all of a sudden, to top it all off, a tornado shows up. And I'm not talking about one of these F1 little ones that go on. I'm talking like an F26. And anybody, if if you've ever talked to anybody that has ever suffered through a tornado or has ever seen one or been around one, they will tell you that the noise is horrific, that it's like literally an oncoming freight train. That's how loud it is. And then all of a sudden, God speaks out of this thing in in as audible a voice as you and I could possibly hear, in as audible a voice as I'm speaking right now, out of the midst of this tornado this whirlwind, this storm, he says to Job, he said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he tells him something. He says, he says dress yourself like a man. The ancient text says, gird your loins. I'm going to contextualize that in today's talk. What he's basically saying to Job is, put your big boy pants on. We got something to do here. I will question you, he said, and you will answer me. So let me ask you a question. (laughs) How do you think Job felt at this very moment? Seriously. Think of everything that he had been through. How do you think he felt at this moment? I'll tell you what I think. I think he was absolutely thrilled and ecstatic. You want to know why? Because God showed up. God showed up. He was ticked, but he showed up. 
So God more or less just goes off on Job because he was making statements without any context or without any knowledge or without any context of what God was doing, and God was going to set the record straight. And he does this for chapters 38 and 39 and asks Job at the beginning of chapter 40 in verse 1, he says this, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. If I might paraphrase, God is saying to Job, What do you have to say for yourself? To which Job replies, In verses 3 through verses 5, or verse 5, I should say, he says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand across my mouth, and I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. If I may paraphrase a second time what Job had to say, he he was basically saying this I'm an idiot. But you're here. God goes on for the next two chapters explaining to Job, or at least attempting to, of the vastness and greatness of his wisdom, power, and justice. And my guess is that Job didn't hear a thing. And you want to know why? Because his greatest fear was lifted. God was there. And nothing, and I mean no thing, else mattered. The fact is this, friends. God was always there, even when it didn't seem like it. But he had to reiterate this to Job. It's the same with us. Jesus reiterates the promise of his constant presence to us in the Great Commission when he says this in Matthew 28 and verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why do you think that's important? It's important because the the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples then and what he asks us to do now is difficult. It's hard. It's going to put us in places that we never thought we would expect to ever be. We're going to be talking to people in ways and manners that we never thought we'd ever have to say things to them. It's going to put us in danger in some places. Just ask some people that that are doing this kind of stuff over in China. Talk to any missionary. The only way that they would get through the things that they would get through is the knowledge and the trust that Jesus never abandoned them, that he never leaves them or forsakes them. So you got to ask the question, okay, that's great. What is God up to here? What's the purpose in all this? Write this down. He is teaching us to trust him in the midst of the darkness. I'll always be direct with you. I'll always tell you what I'm thinking. And I'll say this to you. And it should, it's probably very obvious, especially considering what we've seen in the last week, in the last couple of weeks. We live in a dark and broken world. One that is full of dark and broken stuff and dark and broken people. God knows that most of our lives will be lived in the midst of darkness And that we must learn not only to contend with the darkness, but we must learn to flourish in it. And that means that we must learn to trust God and his goodness and righteousness and his intentions towards us in the thick of some very dark places. 
Job shows us that even in the midst of his darkest times, he could trust God's intentions and his purposes for him. In one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament, Job says this. Job chapter 19 and verses 25 through 27. Familiar to most of you, if not all of you. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. Basically what Job is saying is, they can do anything they want to me. They can burn me, they can crucify me, they can peel my skin off, they can call me nasty names, they can ignore me, they can be mean to me, but it doesn't matter because you know what? My Redeemer lives, and there's going to come a day when I'm going to see him face to face. A powerful statement of faith, no doubt. In the midst of a pretty dark place, And I have no doubt that as time went on, that faith that Job had was made even stronger when he came out of this on the other side. Many of us are familiar with the story of Abraham. I mean, Abraham is is the great patriarch, and we all think and, and should very highly of him. But at the beginning, it wasn't that way. Abraham was just like any other human being. He was selfish. He was out for himself. And if you read... You know, throughout the, in, in Genesis, starting in chapter, especially starting in chapter 12, but especially in chapter 15, what you're going to see is that Abraham really wasn't all that good of a guy. In fact, God stood up in, 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 in Genesis 15. God said to, basically said to Abraham, he said to him, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I mean, what a statement for God to make to you, right? You'd think he'd be incredibly grateful and all this. No, that's not what he said. We said, well, you know, if, 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 if you're such a good guy, why don't I have any kids? What's up with that? You see, God was thinking up here. Abraham was still thinking down here. What needed to happen was God, over the next several years, needed to get Abraham to the point where he could begin to trust him and see the things that he was going to be doing in his life. God made the ultimate ask one day of, of Abraham. And he asked him to get ready to make his way up to, up, up to the mountain to, to basically to sacrifice his son. And, it, and you know what Abraham did? He had gotten himself to the point, he had matured to that, to the point so much, God had taken him through so much and taught him so much that Abraham just picked up his stuff and, start, his stuff and took his servants and his son and started to go up the mountain. And as he was getting ready to make his way up to the mountain to, to perform the sacrifice of his, of, his, of his only son, his son of promise, the one that God promised to him for all those years. He said these revealing words in chapter 22, verse 5. This is Abraham speaking. Then Abraham said to the young men, the servants that that were with him, he said, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Now, did, did, did you catch that? Did you catch what he said? You see, Abraham believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that when he went up that mountain, He was going up with his son to sacrifice him, but he also had no doubt in his mind that when he came down that mountain, he was bringing his son with him. Because that's what God had promised. Because he had learned to trust God that much. This had to be the darkest moment in this man's life. He was going to kill the son that he had waited a hundred years for. 
But his faith was so strong. He had been through so many difficult times. He had learned to trust God in the darkest places, and God showed up in those places so much so that, yeah, you want me to sacrifice my son? We'll take him up. But as it says in Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 11, that great faith hall of fame, Abraham believed with all of his heart that, yeah, he might kill his son, but he believed that God would resurrect him from the dead so he would come back down that mountain with him. That's how much he trusted in God. That's how much he trusted in his presence. The easiest thing in the world for him would have been to say, no, I'm not doing that. What's wrong with you? What kind of, what, who the heck are you? You must be demonic to ask me to do something like this. But he knew it was God, and he trusted him. Abraham learned over a lifetime of difficult circumstances and situations to trust God, even in the midst of the darkness, even in places where he could sense where nothing could be made sense of in this place that God is present and that he will have his way in spite of the brokenness of our fallen world. But it goes even further. Write this down. Excuse me. God's desire is to draw us towards him and reveal his purpose for us to us. One of the things that I'm constantly trying to teach is that One of God's deepest desires for us is to mature to the point where we can make his purposes our purposes. You know, just a couple of minutes ago, I told you basically that, you know, God was up here and Abraham was down here. And what God's intention over the next 25 to 30 years was to get Abraham to the point where these guys were on purpose together. That, he under, that, that, that Abraham had set aside his own wants and needs and that he has taken the purposes that God had for him upon himself. And that's exactly what it came to. You've, in fact, I've preached in front of this group of people that basically that whole thing on Mount Moriah was Abraham's final exam. It really was. And he passed with flying colors. One of... The, one of the things that, I, that as, as I said just a minute ago, in his deepest desire is that we can make his purposes our own. And it requires us to be able to do the thing that we just spoke about, to learn to trust when trusting makes no earthly sense. Once again, Job, in a great statement of faith and trust, reveals where his heart is, even in the midst of his darkest time. Once again, in chapter 23, he says, but I know, he, excuse me, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Abraham, or I'm sorry, Job knew what he, was, what he was going through. But he also trusted in God, knowing that God was molding him and making him into the, into the man that he wanted him to be. And then when he came out the other side, he was going to be a better person. He was going to be the person that God had created him to be. You know, we sing, we sing songs about God making and molding us into the image of Christ and, and, and taking his purpose on our own. But it's tough. It's hard. Because it often runs counter to our nature. We want what we want. You know? It goes against what we think and how we operate. The Old Testament judge Gideon found himself at odds with God's purpose when he confronted God about questioning his intentions. And he was skeptical. And he questioned God and his intentions and what he was doing. And here's what God said to him in, 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 in Judges chapter 6 after, after Gideon had gone off on this. And he, he said, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And, I, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. 
Basically, what God is saying is, is that in spite of everything that you're going through, in spite of everything that you're telling me, in spite of everything that, that you've seen and witnessed, guess what? I am with you. And that's the game changer. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pithy cliche, but it's true. You know, God and you make a majority in any situation. Once again, God asked a question. He asked the question of Gideon. He asked the same question that he asked of Job. The same question that he asked of Abraham. The same question that he asks you. Do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to take my purpose and give your life to it? To make my purpose yours? So why is this so important? What's the big deal? Why is it important, so important, so, to, to risk so much in pursuit of it? Well, here you go. Last thing. Write this down. He does this so that we may partner with him in his redemptive work. Go back to the Great Commission, right? At the end of the day, it is God's plan to redeem all of creation, to restore his shalom to its entirety. It's also his plan, his purpose, to use us as conduits of his reconciliation and redemption to a lost and broken world, a world that he so loves. But in order for us to be used fully by him, in order for us to reach our redemptive potential, we must be willing to set aside our own agenda, our own purpose, and order our lives around the fulfilling and accomplishing of his. And this will require us to have a God and others first attitude. When it was all said and done with Job, the only thing that God required of him for his restoration was for him to pray for the redemption of his friends whom God had stated had spoken wrongly of him. Check it out, Job 42 and verse 8. He says this, And my servant, he's speaking to, to Job's three buddies here, And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. God used Job to restore his friends as a condition of his own restoration. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think maybe this was a difficult thing for Job considering the things that his friends had said about him? But you know what? He was willing to look past the hurt and past the desire for revenge and trust in God's purpose. And as a result, all of them were restored. All of them were redeemed. Likewise, Peter in the New Testament. Here was a guy that was, if I can say, a blowhard. And he was also a coward. Until he trusted in the purposes of Christ and fully surrendered himself to him through the Holy Spirit. As a result, he was transformed into a great man who was a catalyst for change in the world and a leader in the early church. It started here in Acts 2 where a man who, a little more than a month earlier, had even denied knowing the name of Jesus. And in the 14th verse, he stood up and addressed a crowd gathered around him concerning the risen Savior and his gospel. It starts in, in uh, Acts 2 and 14, and it says, Peter, But Peter, standing with the eleven, with his, with his disciples, lifted his voice and addressed them. And when he was done with his sermon, 3,000 people gave themselves to Christ in a movement that still carries on to this day. Us, and still changing hearts and lives was begun. That's what can happen when you were willing to make his purpose your purpose. Maybe when you came in here today, you were beginning to question your faith because you, 
like Job and many others, maybe felt that God had abandoned you or at least, I don't know, made himself distant from you in your hour of need. I'd like to challenge you today and ask you this. I think maybe you need to begin to ask yourself a couple of different sets of questions. I think maybe instead of asking, why is all this happening to you? You know, oh, why is this happening to me? And asking, why, God, where are you in the midst of all this? Maybe you should ask this. God, in the middle of all this difficulty, in light of all that I'm seeing and the distance that I'm sensing from you in the midst of all this, what is your purpose in all this? And what must I do to be aligned with it? If you're willing to ask those kinds of questions, if you're willing to go there with God, be prepared to be worn out by him in pursuit of his purposes here on earth as he uses you to your fullest. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. And I'll tell you right now, it'll alter your life's trajectory dramatically. But I'll tell you this. I have never known anyone who has surrendered themselves to God fully to be used by him for his purposes that has ever regretted it. And my guess is, should you accept this challenge, you won't be the first. Let's pray. Lord God, these are difficult things that, that we have to deal with. You know, we're a people that, that, that we're creatures that are driven by our senses, that are driven by what we can taste and touch and hear and smell and see. But you're a God that transcends all this. You're the one that tells us to think and look outside of this, to trust in your goodness and your, and your mercy and your intentions towards us. And at times when we can't depend on those senses to, to know that you're around us is when it's difficult for us. But it can be done when we take that step. When we say that, you know what, in spite of everything that's going on around me, in spite of the difficulties in my life, in spite of what I do see, I know God's intentions towards me. I know of his great love for me. And I know that in the end, just as Job said, I will see God. Lord, my deepest prayer for every person in this room today, no matter who they are, and no matter what they've gone through or what they perhaps are going through, is that they would ask just one more time, just one more time, for you to reveal yourself to them. And that they would trust you. And that even if they feel that they don't have the faith to do so, that they would ask you for the faith that they would need to be able to do exactly that. God, you tell us that you... You, you created us and that, that, that the church, this, this body that you've, you've gathered around and that you've anointed and that you've worked through is here for a purpose and that purpose is to partner with you in the redemption of this world, to bring about your great shalom. 
But God, we can't do that if we're not willing to trust you, even in the midst of our darkest places, even in the midst of our most difficult circumstances. God, I would ask that you would empower us, that you would give us the strength to ask you one more time to do exactly that, to just fill us with your grace, fill us with your mercy, fill us with your faith. That's the only chance we stand, but it's more than enough than we will ever need to do the things that you've called us to do. Lord, set our purposes to become yours. Teach us to trust you and to love you, not just in the good times, but in the difficult, when it's most almost impossible for us to even think about it. We can do it. All we have to do is ask. Give us the courage to do so. We thank you today for all that you're doing. We pray that the worship that we had for you today was a sweet sound to your ear, and we pray that you were pleased by what we've done. We thank you for your presence here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.